We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to The Transformative Principle. I am your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. And I want to take a minute and just invite you to look at the possibility of coming up to Alaska and teaching or leading in a school or district up here. If you want to connect with me and figure out how you can make the transition up here, I'd be happy to talk to you. Right now, my superintendent position is open. So somebody who wants to make a change and make a real impact to the people of Kodiak, come on up and check that out. And there's always other opportunities. So please take a minute and connect with me and let's figure out how to get some great educators up here in Alaska. Welcome to Transformative Principle. Today, I'm continuing my conversation with Zaretta Hammond, and I think that you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Last week, we talked about how to start culturally responsive teaching and talked about the difference between multicultural education versus culturally responsive education. This week, we're going to talk about the second phase, which is building capacity of teachers and talk about how trust is so important and how there are cultural learning tools we're going to talk about collectivism. So I hope you enjoy this. This is good information for us to have and something that can really help us connect with our kids in a real and meaningful way that helps them be better. I do appreciate you listening to this podcast. Thank you so much. It means a lot to me. And I hope that you'll take a moment to share this with somebody who could benefit from listening to it as well. Thank you. And here's part two of my interview with Zaretta Hammond. I'd say the second phase is helping teachers build different kinds of relationships with students and with parents. So after there's this work and this ethos and kind of culture of true high expectations in the school building, now we're wanting to look in the classroom. How do we build the capacity of teachers to actually have a different relationship with students? And I think for leaders, that means emphasizing something different when you're doing evaluation or when you're doing walkthroughs, right? What gets measured is what gets done. So if teachers know it's important to you as a leader that there are a different 
types of relationships with students, what I call learning partnerships, where there's trust between the student, that the teacher is holding the student to not just high expectations, but is able to kind of push the student into their zone of proximal development and in supportive ways. There's good productive struggle going on in the classroom. The leader knows what he's looking for and is able to communicate that to the teacher in a way that the teacher says, oh, I do need to pay attention to how I'm creating trust amongst my students because trust is the first one. And we, and in culturally responsive teaching, the reason that you're building trust is connected to the brain science. We can't learn if we're stressed out. We can't learn if we are not feeling supported or we're feeling distrustful. So if we know teachers have already said things to us that make us feel inadequate, then we know we need to feel safe. And if we don't feel safe, we can't be in our best learning mode. So the first order of business is to help students feel safe. So Zaretta, I think we need to just pause on that moment, that piece for just a moment, because that idea of building trust is truly powerful. And that is a really hard thing for us to do when we are fighting against culture that is ingrained. And you talk about microaggressions and what the media is saying about these kids. That's a difficult thing for us to overcome. So how do we fast track that trust so that we can get to the learning right away? And is that even possible to fast track it or does it just take time? I think it. you can fast track it. I mean, it still takes time. <laughs> That's true. But I do think you can fast track it. I do think that teachers and leaders can leverage what I call trust generators. So that, you know, neuroscience tells us there are ways that human beings actually develop trust with each other. So one example is what we call selective vulnerability. What that means is I tell you something about myself that reveals kind of the inner me. And in return, we usually will reveal something about ourselves uh, in return. You know, whoever you're talking to actually reveals something about themselves. And that whole process actually creates oxytocin in our brains, which binds us, that we feel more trusting, less stress, and we're more likely to hang in there when there's a conflict because we feel friendly with that person. I have an eighth grade teacher that I worked with, and one of the things she did to build this sense of selective vulnerability is she taped a picture of herself as an eighth grader to her front desk. And the students were like, oh my gosh, that was you in eighth grade? I mean, it was all, her and all her eighth grade glory, braces and all. And she said, yes. And as they saw that, wow, now this is who you are, right? A capable, attractive, bright woman, I possibly can be that. And the, and the fact that she would be that vulnerable with them, they made themselves more vulnerable their willingness to share their struggles. And this started to bond them individually with her, but also collectively as a classroom with each other as they then were actually starting to build trust. And there are four other trust generators that I talk about in the book. But the idea is that you can fast track that uh, level of trust and rapport with students. Yeah, and I'm glad you stopped there because those little things like, 
having a picture of you in your room when you were that age, that's a powerful thing that kids love to talk about and love to be a part of. And that is definitely a good way. I had, I just want to share a brief experience where I was able to do something like that a, a couple of weeks ago. We were having a food drive and I was able to be in a classroom while they were talking about what they were going to do with it. And I, I shared how I had been impacted by a food drive when I was younger and how we were poor and didn't have, my dad didn't have a job and we didn't have money for food. And that was really difficult for me to come to grips with. And looking back, I'm so grateful for people who were able to help out and, and provide us with food and, and support during that difficult time. And the looks that I got from the kids after that was they were a lot different from the students in that class. They, they definitely, I felt that trust increase with them. And when I finished and I made eye contact with a couple of them, then it was a different, a different feeling. And, and I know that the trust was increased because of that. So I I just want to reemphasize that you can, you can do that. And uh, that selective vulnerability, you know, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to say that all the time. But in that discussion, that was definitely a a good place to do it. And the kids responded well to it. Yeah. And that's why the word selective is in front of that, right? That we're selective about not only what we share, but when we share it. Because it's not something you're doing all the time. That's why there are other ways that human beings build trust with each other. Because if someone was doing that all the time, actually, you might start to distrust them. Like, hmm, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to manipulate me? Right? We're all, our brains are always on the hunt for things that are going to be a threat to us, to our safety, to our well-being. And here's a little piece for leaders and teachers to keep in mind. The brain registers social pain at the same level as physical pain. So the same areas of the brain light up if we stubbed our toe as if as when we you know feel embarrassed or when we are hurt by another so making sure that we are thinking about right how we're connecting to each other becomes really important so being able to be selective about when we are using a particular approach to fast track trust and relationship, I think is really important. And there are other ways to do that as well. Familiarity, being seen out and about in places where students and their families are going to be and interacting with them and acknowledging them, even if you're not stopping to speak, but just making eye contact and giving a head nod. That goes a long way when you're back in the classroom or back in the school setting. Like, I saw you at the movie or I saw you at the farmer's market and start to sense that the teacher, the leader is just a human being. And again, trust is generated. But here's a here's a piece that I want to make sure we understand. Culturally responsive teaching isn't just about the relationship. The, we build relationship and we do that leveraging the best culture, the best trust generator, which is culture. And I say that in the sense that collectivist practices, particularly in a lot of uh, indigenous communities and a lot of communities of color, uh, you really have this idea of collectivism as a way in which we build trust with each other, right? That we're very communal, that we make sure that there's an interdependence and a sense of connection, that we come with conflict resolution 
skills because that harmony is important. All of those are one aspect of culturally responsive teaching. And the reason that we build that relationship is so that when learning gets hard, we have the relationship so that when that push is needed, the teacher can push the student without the student falling apart, without the student being resistant, but the student looks at the teacher and says, you've got my back. You're actually pushing me because you care for me. And information processing ease is what we're really trying to do, is really trying to get the student to process the content that's being taught in new ways and ways that leverage their cultural ways of knowing. I offer when I do workshops for cultural learning tools that teachers can utilize. And so the more the leader knows about what those cultural ways of learning are, what good information processing looks like, then he or she is able when they're doing walkthroughs or they're talking with teachers or professional development is being designed, it's going to incorporate that and not just focus on the relational piece. Yeah, there's about a million things going through my mind right now that I that I want to ask you about all those things. I just want to say first that the recognition that it's not just about relationships is is so important. And I love what you said about you have to have good relationships so the teacher can push when the learning gets hard. And that is I've seen that so many times and seen where that relationship had it been there could have allowed that and how anyway that's there's just so much power in in the things that you're saying one of the things that i hear and that i struggle with personally is when we make these general broad statements about what a a student's culture is like there's the reality is that there's so much intertwining of of different cultures now, especially with the connectivity that we have, that how do we not overgeneralize and be uh, appropriate still and not say just because this student is African-American or Alaska Native that they have this specific cultural background. So, for example, we had some Samoan dancers come to our school this last week, and they talked about how these were two young women, late teens, early 20s, who were dancing. And in their description of the dance, they said that they were influenced by rap music, but they still use traditional Samoan moves as well. And so how do you balance that aspect of of kids being connected and being influenced by other cultures and not overgeneralizing? I, I think that's a really good question. The first order of business is understanding there's a common thread through most cultures, and particularly when you're talking about indigenous cultures, communities of color, and that's collectivism. So a lot of teachers say, well, I have to know, you know, I have 19 different cultures in my classroom, and I've got to know the nuances of each one. And I tell them you really don't. What you need to understand is the difference between individualism and collectivism as a starting place. If you can bring more collectivist approaches into the classroom, more ways that students are doing social learning, right? Figuring out a problem together, right? That distributed expertise, being able to talk together as they're solving problems, not as a replacement of individual work, but knowing that a part of collectivist learning is learning together. 
So that's one example. And therefore, you don't have to stereotype, oh, this is what African-American students like. This is what Samoans are like. I think that's where teachers get tripped up. And then they it gets reduced to this kind of stereotypical thing. The idea is creating that collectivist atmosphere in the classroom that allows students entry points and being able then to use the elements of collectivist culture as a way to allow students then to come into learning with the particular nuance maybe from their culture. The, when you talk about things like dance, when you talk about things like music, that's surface culture. And that's not necessarily the aspect of culturally responsive teaching we're talking about here. That's more of the window dressing. I think teachers get stuck there. And that's kind of in that category of multicultural education as well. So just really helping them understand all you need to know is collectivist practices. How do you bring a few more into your classroom, particularly when you're wanting students to chew on new content? right? Get to a level of understanding. How do you bring that in? Um, and then understanding that culture is broad. It's it's kid culture. It's teen culture. It's girl culture. It's boy culture. That we all have a culture, right? Over 30 culture, right? <laughs> you know, Under 10 culture. And it's just understanding yeah. that broader definition of culture. And I, I think that that really is beneficial because with multicultural education, you really feel like you have to know intimately every culture to be successful. Otherwise, you're not doing it right. And what it sounds to me like you're saying is that you don't have to know everything. You just need to be open to everything and allow for students to bring their own culture into the into the classroom. Is that a very simplified but fair statement of what you're talking about? I'd say it may be oversimplified. I don't think it's just about being open and letting students bring it in. I do think leaders and teachers need to educate themselves as to what is a collectivist culture. What are some of the elements? So in professional development time, that's what they should be learning. So as they understand collectivist culture, then they're able to understand how do I bring those elements into my classroom, not necessarily the particular nuance of a particular cultural, racial, or ethnic background. For example, we know in collectivist cultures, the oral traditions, because there was not a focus on reading and writing, but on oral tradition, oral passing along of information, story is really important. Right? How are students storifying information? How are they putting it in the story grammar that our brains like as a way to hold on to information rather than memorizing it? This is what students are already doing at home if they come from a collectivist culture. So again, if teachers understand that, they can just bring that element in. And again, they're not trying to you know, know every culture. They're not trying to leave it up to the student. I think we put the burden on the student when we do that. And we try to take ourselves as educators out of the equation. I'm just creating this open classroom. But you have to be the leader, whether you're the leader of your staff, right? I understand how to bring more collectivist elements in. And maybe you're modeling in staff meetings. Maybe we start with story. Maybe we start with protocols in which we talk more, right? There is not a lot of discussion yeah. in classrooms. So I think it's the, that's the difference, right? Understand collectivism rather than just let every student bring their culture into the classroom. Yeah. Thank you for, for clarifying that. I, I do believe that that is powerful. You know, one of the things 
that I think is a challenge is we have so much stuff that we need to focus on for staff meetings and things like that. How do we as principals and leaders figure out how much of this to bring in and whether or not it should be our entire focus, like my superintendent said, or should it be something that we do a little bit each time? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I I really appreciate that question because I do think because we're so overwhelmed with where to start and how to start, we don't start. Yeah. <laughs> and we just need to kind of break it up and, you know, figure small pieces and we can get started. And the best way to do that, I think, is not see it as a subject area that you have to tackle. I think for leaders is helping integrate certain aspects into every meeting, which means that if we're trying to practice more collectivism, let's bring some of those structures into the way that we conduct our meeting. We can still have our meeting be about our agenda, be about the items we need to discuss, but the way in which we do it can bring some collectivist elements in it. So one of the protocols I like to use, which exemplifies that is the World Cafe. People can Google it and they can see that it's a very interactive way in which teachers can talk to each other about a particular topic. You could be talking about literacy practices or you could be talking about what shall we do with the playground discipline issue, right? But when you're using the World Cafe, it's a different way to interact and get to a solution, you would be modeling some of that culturally responsive collectivist practice. Yeah, I like that. And I think that that's a powerful way to start. The last question that I ask every person on my podcast is, what is one thing that principals can do starting today to be a transformative principal? I think it really revolves around their facilitative leadership. And what does that mean? Facilitative leadership is about how do you create a meeting structure and agenda that is equity focused, that you have the desire to improve uh, outcomes for all students, but understand that particular students continue to struggle and are marginalized. And so that you are creating agenda items where you're keeping your eye on equity. You're creating counter narratives so that you're being proactive about stating in the positive the potential of these students and the way that you're going to think about them in a more productive way rather than deficit way. So I think setting those conditions, leading the path, leading the way for leaders and teachers in, in nonverbal actions is so powerful. So it's not just what you say, but it's how you do the things you say are important. And constantly coming back to them, not letting them fall off the radar. That was something important at the beginning of the year, but you don't practice it anymore. You don't talk about it or you just give lip service to it. So I, I really would encourage leaders to up their facilitative leadership game. How do you talk about equity? How do you create the conditions? How do you bring relational trust into your school interactions across uh, the school with adults, adult to adult, adults to parents as a first step to creating the conditions for culturally responsive teaching ultimately to broad, be brought into your school. 
Yeah, I, I think that is great advice. And there's so much more that we could have talked about. And I, I appreciate your time. I've learned a ton so far. If you're not already following Zaretta, that's ready for rigor dot com and please go there and check that out. She also has a boot camp to help you get started on this that I think would be wise to do if this is interesting to you and certainly pick up her book as well. So thank you so much to Zaretta for being part of the podcast today. Thanks so much for listening. I love that interview with Zaretta. She is an inspiring leader, and I hope that you take a minute to go to her website, readyforrigor.com, and check out the things that she is offering. Transformative Principles is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators by educators. Visit edupodcastnetwork.com for more great podcasts. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.